This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. If you follow the news at all, whether on mainstream media, social media, Catholic media, or other, you no doubt have seen that the Synod on Synodality began earlier this week in Rome. And every few years we have another Synod, and every few years the language around that Synod, as it reports on it, is remarkably the same. There is uh, no small amount of hand-wringing and speculation and even some conspiracy theories about what is to come from these gatherings of bishops, priests, and lay people? There's an extra layer of confusion added onto this, though, because very rarely will you find two people who agree on the outcome of what the Synod is trying to accomplish and what the Synod will actually accomplish. So today I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about these questions. What is a Synod? Is there anything about this particular synod that's different as compared to others? What is an appropriate response for Catholics at home toward a synod, and this synod in particular? And there are a few things that are worth keeping in mind as we begin this discussion. The first thing is this. Whenever you go and find a non-religious news organization reporting on religion, it's almost a guarantee that they're going to get it wrong. And more often than not, laughably so. But even in Catholic media, sometimes we get it wrong. And so rather than adding my voice to the fray to try and explain these things that are a little bit above my pay grade, I thought that today we would invite in uh, an expert. I was reading through the various sites about the Senate, and I came across two pieces, one in America Magazine and one in the National Catholic Register both on the Synod, uh, and both just masterfully written. One is called, Is the Synod Ignoring the Concerns of Most Catholics in the Pews? And the other is, What's in Play at the Synod on Synodality? We've got both of these linked over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is also at step outside the walls. We're talking today with the author, and it's a rare thing that you're going to have uh, an author on both of those sites uh, be the same author, because they typically uh, approach things within the church a little differently. Typically, they are directed at different audiences, and yet every once in a while, there is someone so extraordinary uh, that they are able to to speak broadly to the church and in multiple avenues. And that's certainly the case with our guest today. We have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Pia de Salini, who is a theologian, an ethicist, and a cultural analyst. She's held various academic and policy roles, was a principal founder of the Global Institute for Church Management. She's also served as chancellor and theological advisor to the Bishop of Orange in California. She's an expert on issues related to Catholicism, culture, ethics, and so much more. And it's such a pleasure, Pia, to have you back on the show. Thanks for being with us. It's good to be back, TL. Thank you. So, Pia, there's a lot of of anxiety that gets generated as whenever we talk about synods. And I wonder if we might be able to disarm some of that simply by starting with a really simple explanation of the synod. What's the purpose of a synod and what should we expect from this one? So the purpose of a synod is just to serve as a consultative body for the Pope, for the Holy Father. 
Um, in the past, it's been the bishops. It was most recently reconfigured under Pope Paul VI. And there's a couple different things going on here. So first, keep in mind that the bishops of the world, even though they're supposed to be working together, don't have that many of opportunities to come together from different parts of the world. So you'll see that, um, and, and, and this is, it becomes very difficult because bishops don't necessarily understand situations in other parts of the world and so forth. Um, if you do, in the, ex the extraordinary case, have some sort of a council, it's very difficult because, again, they don't know, they, there's not even a universal language anymore. Latin used to be the universal language of the church. Well, now when they get the bishops together, there's no universal language to converse in. So it's been, I've talked to different people that kind of work on the back end of these um, different meetings and so forth. And because there's no universal language, they can't even converse in Latin. Then there are some bishops who will inevitably be isolated from others, right? And not able to share their experiences and so forth. So, and it's also an, an opportunity to address some of the more topical manner questions of the day. Again, really to reaffirm church teaching, not to change church teaching. So that's what a synod is. It is consultative. There are votes. The delegates get to vote. This year, there are about 70 non-bishops participating, uh, or may, might be more. Anyway, there, there are women and men religious, lay women and men, and priests as well. And in the past, they could have been consultants or whatever, but they wouldn't have a vote. Uh, they wouldn't be able to vote. So there, there is a difference. To my mind, I'm. I know some people are pretty upset about that. To my mind, the whole Synod is symbolic, so it's a symbolic vote, and I, you know, I, I'm okay with that. Um, at the end of the day, it's a consultative body, so the Pope can do whatever he wants with the information, and he can use it or he can not use it. He can shift it. I mean, there's all sorts of different possibilities there. You use the term, um, it's a symbolic vote, and you mm -hmm. broke that out just a little bit, but I wonder if you might expound what do you mean by this is a symbolic vote well it's not a determining vote mm -hmm. so whenever you serve on a consultative body you vote you might vote but it's not going to affect any outcome it's not like you vote for president and that's the person that will or won't become president that your your vote does not determine anything right you vote for a piece of legislation whichever side of that legislation gets the most votes it's the votes that determine whether or not someone is elected, a piece of legislation is enacted, and so forth. This is not, it doesn't determine. So again, it's symbolic. And, and it's what the, 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 the individual is representing, or maybe they're representing a group of people, but it is not a determinative type of vote. Voting one way does not ensure any type of outcome. All it's going to do be is, you know, a, a, a wind a finger in the in the wind mm -hmm. to indicate to the Holy Father the direction that things are going, the direction that some a group thinks that they should go. But again, it's all very subjective. Do you think that there's something in the the language of voting that causes some of the stress here in the states? Yes and no. Um, by the same token, there are all sorts of advisory boards in the states that are in consultative bodies here in the states. This is not a Rome thing or a European thing. And people serve on these types of boards all the time and they vote and that their, their vote may or may not be taken at, at face value. Right. I, I think that here in the United States, particularly with the church, we have politicized so much for so long 
and we're kind of on a hair trigger. I mean, we hear one thing and, and no matter what type of mass we prefer, no matter what type of liturgy we like or music or our politics, m- many of us tend to get our heckles up as soon as we hear whatever that activating word is for us. And so we immediately have opinions about things. We immediately react to things. We immediately think the church should or shouldn't have done things. So if anything, I think it's just that we've the church has become such a reactionary space for Catholics in the United States. Now, at the same time, I want to point out, I mean, the pro-life movement wouldn't be where it's at in the United States if it weren't for the church, all right? Mm -hmm. And the pro-life movement in the United States is far and above beyond any other pro-life movement around the world, right? So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of good in terms of activism and so forth. At the same time, I think we have become, it's just the, the, the environment of the church has become so politicized. And one of the things that I've been pondering recently, and I'd like to get you know, thoughts from other people like yourself and our listeners is, you know, a lot of us spent time fighting the culture wars. I mean, I did that in my policy work in DC. I did that in media work. And I realized recently that while we're fighting culture wars, then that means we're not spending time building culture. Mm -hmm. And I am increasingly of the belief that we created a vacuum and the, the, the church should have been building. And and by the church, I mean, all of us of the faithful making up the body of Christ, all of the baptized, we should have been creating culture. And it's not enough to say, no, don't do something. We also have to be saying, well, what do you, what are we inviting people to say yes to? And I don't think that's been always clear. We we're very good at the no part, but we're not so great as, Hey, well, what can you do? Mm -hmm. You bring up just at the right time, this topic. Um, I was walking into mass last week with my, with my, wife and our nine children. And one of the greeters, as we came into the church, stopped one of my teenage children and, and said to her, um, your parents are so countercultural because having a big family is countercultural. And then we walked in and something just did sit right with me about that phrase. And I got home and I talked to my wife about it. And what, what I kind of eventually came to was I'm not doing any of the things that I'm doing to be countercultural. I'm doing the things that I'm doing because this is the life of the, that I've built and the culture that I've embraced, mm-hmm. which may not look like the culture around me, but I'm not doing it for the purpose of being countercultural. And, and and I I think a little bit that that's what you may have been getting at there. Yes, and I mean, can we just put a pin there and say that I I think it's really nuts for somebody to be saying that to your teenage child. So. Right. That's a little bit out of line, but anyway, in my book, but no, I I do. I think that's exactly the, what we're getting at. And it's like, are we building something up or are we tearing something down? And usually we can't do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, you know, again, I just, I think that we, there's a lot of elements that that we have to get back. I think we have to get back to the basics Mm -hmm. and, you know, many pastors that I know their philosophy is do the basics well. So what I've seen since the pandemic is the, the the parishes that are doing well, that haven't had the setbacks of, of the pandemic, and in fact, have even more people coming since the pandemic, those are the parishes where the pastor does the basics well. So it's not a song and dance. He's not going to have like the f- most fabulous programs and whatever, but he's going to have mass, confessions, adoration. Uh, one of the pastors near us he 
when the pandemic first started, the word got out that he and his associate pastor were ha- hearing confessions in the parking lot. Yeah. And as I understand the story that the reason he did that, he said, well, what am I supposed to do? Stare at my screen all day? Mm-hmm. And he, he had to find some way in which to serve his flock within the parameters that we'd been given. Um, so I, I think it's really a question of getting back to what are the basics. And so as I wrote in the America article, it, it seems to me that we've come to, there's a bit of a disconnect. I think this is another reason why people are concerned about the Synod is that, that it, there were there were uh, activities at the local level and, there were, and the local churches were instructed to do this and to participate. But the thing is, is that our needs at the local level are a heck of a lot different than the talking points that we're seeing coming out of the, the Synod working document now. And as the Synod members go into the Synod, these are very, they're, they're worlds apart. Mm-hmm. So the people that I come into contact with, they're, they're dealing with day-to-day struggles. It's like, how do I get, how, one of my kids isn't practicing the faith. What do I do? I'm having this problem in my marriage. Uh, I want to get married and I haven't met somebody. I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. I My prayer life is just so dry. What do I do? I'm lonely, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, so they're super basic questions. And then we're hearing these high-level conversations are, are sh- on, should the church change the teaching on women's ordination or LGBTQ? or And, you know, I was talking to a friend, uh, messaging with a priest friend who's a missionary. And he said to me, he said, where I go as a missionary, he said, we don't have the luxury of, t- of, of talking about these things. He said, what we need, what we do is we practice the faith. And he's in an area that is hostile to Christians. I think the number of Christians under persecution globally right now is about 400 million, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just grabbing at that, but I think that's yeah. right. And so think about all those people that are being persecuted for their Christian beliefs. They don't have the luxury to sit back and talk about some of these ideas of uh, changing church teaching when all they're trying to do is to live the faith. Mm-hmm. So there's this disconnect between the parish, the ordinary person in the developed world and their parish and what's happening at the synod. And then I think there's a disconnect between what somebody in a more missionary territory, I mean, what they're doing is they're excited yeah. to have mass. They're right. excited to have confirmations. Um, that, and, and so this missionary priest, for example, I mean, he's going into one of these territories. He's teaching confirmation classes. They will be welcoming, I, I don't know if it's either 70 or 170 people into the church, you know, um, in a few months. This, so these are very different experiences of the church. And I, I think there's people have a hard time seeing how those experiences come together at the Synod. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned, I, I believe it's in the America piece, um, just how boring a synod actually is. Uh, and we're doing something in our diocese that's uh, the the combination, the, the um, joining together of parish families that has a tendency and the, and the potential of being very um, divisive and, and raising mm-hmm. People's um, raising people's ire and and making divisions stronger, uh, and so they have created a process that is as boring as possible, um, so that everyone gets heard, right? So everyone gets to sit down and and give their two minutes of of conversation without it becoming a debate, because mm-hmm. we, as you mentioned, everybody's got a hair trigger, and we're so trained to 
treat every conversation like a debate, that they've built this structure at the at our uh, archdiocesan level to make this process at least feel somewhat validating. And as I was reading your description of what's happening at synods, typically, it sounded very much the same thing, that there is this uh, very constrained process that everyone has to go through that doesn't really uh, live up to the hype or the liveliness that we have uh, in our minds about, around the synod. Oh, I wish there were debates, you know, and I didn't use the word boring, but you know, <laughs> people sit around, they give interventions of three to five minutes. And the whole point is that, you know, by the end of this time, everybody's had a chance to give their three to five minute interventions, and then they, they vote on different resolutions. So it's a very bureaucratic, tedious process. I mean, this year, if you might have seen some of the images on social, they've changed the the structure. I think it's good. I mean, they're, they have round tables where people have a monitor. So they're sitting with a table. I think it's about 12, 10 to 12 people around the table. This is in the Paul the Sixth Hall. Everybody has a monitor. And so they'll see the person who's speaking right up close. Um, they The Pope and his has is sitting at a similar table that is only slightly higher, raised by a dais. Um, but it, again, this is very, I, I think most of us would rather see a fun debate. We, we <laughs> rather go back to one of those rumbles of the old councils that we hear of, right? Where they're like going at it. I, I think that this, again, I appreciate the, the effort here and the intent, but some of these things really do need to be debated and battled out and not in, you know, the type of debates that we have nowadays where, Either people shout over the microphone mm -hmm. or it's the, a panel where each person gives their perspective. But really a point-counterpoint debate, something like, uh, you know, one of the, my favorite accounts that I've read of is C.S. Lewis and Elizabeth Anscombe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when she challenged him on the Eucharist and the real presence, and we tend to think of Lewis as, you know, a fairly articulate Christian. And she went after him. I mean, she was a philosophy professor at Oxford and boy, did she, she knew how to get him. And I kind of think, uh, that's just my take. I'd love to see that. At the same token, um, it's it's a limited structure. I mean, yeah. you're getting three or four hundred people together to try and come up with some shared experience and some sort of consensus. That's very, very difficult. And remember, this is several hundred people from different parts of the world, different languages, and so forth. I think it's going to be a Sisyphusian task from the very beginning. Not only several hundred people from different places, but each of those several hundred is representing, uh, hopefully, the the thoughts and conversations that have already happened in their own local level. So each person is representing uh, thousands of other opinions that they're bringing along mm -hmm. with them. Very similar in some way to what happens uh, every five years with the ad limina visits from each bishop as they go and they take their regional opinion back to Rome. It's just that this is all happening at, at once. Well, with the ad limina's too, I think there's more chance. There's to the ad limina, they come with an actual report and mm -hmm. there is a structure and a format for that report. And it contains, I mean, just basically every detail you can imagine about right. the diocese and <clears throat> That report is sent ahead of time, and there is a time for very pointed questions. And um, the nice thing is, is it's a private meeting, so the difficult questions can be asked, mm -hmm. and the Holy Father can ask those questions, or his designate ask those questions. So I think, in many ways, the ad limina might be a more constructive um, meeting because, in a sense, everyone has time to prepare for it. You know yeah. what's up for discussion, 
And if there's, you know, if difficult issues need to be raised or if a correction needs to be made, it can be made because it's not public and it isn't a safe space. Um, if you want, you know, again, you, when you talk about a meeting involving hundreds of people, it's very difficult to keep that under wraps or private. I think yeah. the Holy Father has asked for people to fast from the from media, I think, or something like that, the participants. So he's not calling it, he's not imposing uh, papal secrecy, but he's asking people to fast from, from media and so forth. Um, it, because I think he realizes he can't make it secret. And, you know, the, the joke that amongst some of my clerical friends is, is if you want to get something, if you want to get the word out, tell a priest. Yeah. Yeah. Tell them it's a secret. It does not apply to confession. Right. I was about to say, apart from the seal, right? So this synod on synodality, the, the, the actual uh, name is the Synod for a Synodal Church, Communion, Participation, and Mission, uh, is is not the first synod. We've had multiple synods. I think this is the 16th synod over the course of the years. Of course, I remember at least the last three, including this one, there's been a lot of hype and buzz and worry and and lots of ink spilled on what was going to come out of the synod. And without exception, the things that were the the hot topics that people were worried about happening, they they never came to pass. Those things didn't happen. Um, now, the, the, I guess the question that I have is: you mentioned that this is a, a symbolic vote. People are going, they're sharing the opinions, but the votes that they are taking uh, are not determinative. They don't make any any. Uh, they don't require the pope to do any specific thing. So, as merely a consultative body. Uh, what what value do you see in these synods, which create a lot of hype, but don't really m- maybe make a lot of movement? What value do you see in having these synods uh, uh, over the years? You know, I think I, that's a little bit above my pay grade. Um, we So, I, you know, in one of my articles, I referred to controversies. So, for example... Um, the, around the synod on the Amazon, there was all the controversy about married priests, right? And so the synod came and went, and that region has not changed its position mm-hmm. on married priests. The Holy Father did not allow for that. Uh, we had two synods on the family, mm-hmm. and and so obviously that includes marriage. And most of the people that I know that are struggling with their marriages are or with family situations do not see the parish as a place where they can go to for help. Even in being, terms of being referred out, what are other resources, right? So, I, I and I don't know what's going to come out of this synod, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what I want to focus on is, yes, the, these synods are happening. Um, I, I don't find that they have a, a tremendous impact, except insofar as there is what I call the parallel synods, and I. I borrow this from Pope Benedict XVI. He said that there were two parallel Vatican um, two councils. And he said there was the real one and the one of the media. And what I find is that there's, with the synods, we have a real synod going on. And no matter what it's talking about, good or, for good or ill, there's this parallel synod of the media. And I have even found priests confused. They think that because the media is repeating reporting something that it's legit that it's accurate. And so, f- for example, the, w- the the whole conversation before Morris Letizia mm-hmm. was <clears throat> about the allowing the divorce to remarried to receive communion. That was, it, it, that, that teaching of the church was never changed. 
And yet there are, there are a lot of people who think it was simply because of the reporting. I mean, I spoke with a reporter just the other day and about some of these issues. And it was fascinating because he didn't even know some of the terms that I was using. And this is a Vatican journalist, right? He didn't, and he didn't know some of these basic church terms. So that was a red flag to me. This is your business, your day-to-day business, and you don't know a key term. Then what struck me was he sent me a link to the article afterwards. And it had, he said, he even told me, he's like, you know, I ended up not using your quotes. Well, that's fine. I'm sure there are tons of people out there that are better. But what was interesting was his entire article for a rep, very reputable outlet was it was clickbait. Mm-hmm. And it was all saying that certain things had changed that haven't actually changed and throwing into question. And it's all so that's what my concern is, is the, the biggest damage is done by these parallel um, synods in the media. And I would say on both sides, I mean, there are groups of faithful Catholics <clears throat> who are very ardent and in opposing any changing of church teaching. And I compliment them for their faith and their ardor. But at the same time, I sometimes wonder if what they're doing is constructive. Does it really build up the body of Christ? And that to me is the examination of conscience for any of us who are front facing, doing commentary, doing media. uh, If we're church leaders, whatever we do, is it building up the body of Christ or is it tearing it down? And when I look at the, the, just the incredible strife And granted, it's not among all 240-some million Catholics here in the United States, right? It's in this minuscule pocket. Mm -hmm. But when I look at that type of anxiety and strife, I'm not convinced that that's a good thing. And in in my Register article, I touch on this, that if we lose our peace, that's usually a sign that we're off track. And I think a lot of us confuse peace. We think if we have righteous indignation or we're convinced, we have conviction that therefore we have peace. Well, no, not necessarily. And you, it, it, peace is, is much more profound. And we see it in heroes and saints. We, it, the, these are people, and some, many of them we'll never hear, hear of, right? But those that we do hear of, we see they do difficult things, and yet they, remain, they retain that composure. And what I'm seeing is a lot of people not maintaining that composure, not maintaining that peace. So then I asked myself, well, I'm, is this something that we should be doing? And I had a priest message me a few weeks ago in the middle of some um, big internet debate, whatever. I say big debate. It's a big debate in a little, in a, in a tiny little yeah. hole. But he told me, he said, I deleted everything and I decided to go outside and look for a hummingbird. And I thought, you know, that's probably the healthiest thing you could have done. I, because yeah. it's just, we create, we enter into so, so much strife and we create so much strife. And, you know, Okay, maybe the synod's going to be a goat rodeo. I don't know. But at the end of the day, getting worked up about it, is that going to make me a better better Christian? Is that going to help me get closer to heaven? Is that going to make me a better wife? Is that going to make me a better daughter, sister, friend, whatever? I mean, probably not. And so that's where I think we really have to be very careful. I think we're going far astray. Yeah. We're talking today with Dr. Pia De Saleni. She is a moral theologian, ethicist, and cultural analyst. She's got a couple of pieces out right now about the Synod, one on America Magazine, the other on the National Catholic Register. We've linked both of those over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls, threads also at step outside the walls. Don't go anywhere because there's much more to this conversation right after the break as we look at our response. What's an appropriate response for us 
to the Synod. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls as we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. Pia De Saleni. She is a moral theologian. You can find her website, uh, conveniently enough, at moraltheologian.com. We're talking today about the synod on synodality, but also just on synods uh, writ large, and even more so on our response to things that are um, vexing, things that are stressful uh, in in the church and in the media and in our uh the daily existence. Pia, thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you. So this is just before the break, we were talking about our response to those um, trigger words, those stimuli, those things that, that we so often see in the media that get us uh, wound up with righteous indignation. And this was really kind of the key point that, uh, that I wanted to talk with you about. Because um, you rightly point out that that there's much more spiritual benefit from going out and looking for the hummingbirds, uh, physically and metaphorically, and getting away from those uh, those points of division and strife. Um, as we look at anxiety, as we look at, we hear someone say, oh, this thing is going to happen because they're doing the synod. This thing is going to happen because the bishop said so-and-so and everyone gets worked up. I I look at those, um, what is behind the anxiety, and typically what I see is it is a uh, the perception that I am not in control of something that I feel like I should be in control of. Uh, something is going off the rails that I feel like I should be able to maintain. And whenever I find that anxiety in myself, uh, depending on whatever the issue is, I have to evaluate, uh, am I trusting God's promises? Am I uh, investing in the things that I'm supposed to be investing in? Uh, or uh, And is this thing that I'm worried about really something that is within my purview to be able to worry about. And to that mm-hmm. end, I think of the um, the phrase where it says, who of you by worrying can add a single hair to your head? And of course I'm bald. So I uh, obviously not at all, right? We'd all have great heads of hair if we could add to them by worrying. Mm-hmm. So as you, as you look at this <clears throat> and you look at the, the anxiety that you find, uh, what would be maybe your thoughts and advice on not only how to avoid a specific topic of anxiety, but how to maybe live more into that piece that you were talking about at the, at the end of the last segment? I mean, it's, you know, what that acronym KISS, keep it simple, sweetheart. I, I think we just need to keep things simple. And, you know, again, I ha- we know how to get to heaven that mm-hmm. there's, there's no doubt about that. We know what steps we have to take. We know how we have to live. <clears throat> and it's really how can I refocus on living these steps, which means embracing Christ in the other in my day-to-day life, wherever I am. And that's 
quite honestly, much harder than having these high level <laughs> conflicts and debates and so forth, where we think we're going to change the world, but we're not. Um, it's living it out in the day to day right in front of us. And so I, I think it's, again, it's an examination of conscience. And I start with, am I building up the body of Christ or am I tearing it down? And then really, what what is my primary obligation? And so typically, um, I don't know, no matter what I say on Twitter, it's not going to change what happens in Rome. Um, but it's time that I'm taking, probably taking away, it, it could be time that I'm taking away from an article I should write. It could be time that I'm taking away from my family. It could be time that I'm taking away from my friends. It could be time that I'm taking away from God. How's my prayer life? How much time have I spent praying? Um, how much time have I just spent like in true leisure where I just disconnect and I enjoy something, you know, I read a book, I go for a hike, I go for a swim, all these different things. I, it's really just, I think, start with an examination of conscience and then ask ourselves, I can get furious and leave 20 comments on an article. But at the end of the day, is that really going to change anything? And am I really going to convince anyone? Because if you think you're going to convince somebody in a social media argument or in the com boxes, I mean, oh my gosh, dream on. It's mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, refocus. Yeah. Really just stop and take stock. And, and the thing is, is that, I mean, and, and really maybe something to do in your spare time is, or in our spare time, and this is one thing that I try and do is, I go back and read church history because when you read church history, you see that, I mean, if you think now is bad, it's nothing compared to so many other stages in the church. And I guess what I find is a consolation again, is whatever these trials are in the church, one of the, the, the incredible things that happens is that we get great saints and we always get greater clarity on, on church teaching. And so it's kind of a baptism by fire or a trial by fire. Um, there, there are many good things that actually can come out of this. I think we just have to all understand, well, what is our, what is our respect? What are our respective roles? Um, most of us aren't having breakfast with the Holy Father and chatting with him and telling him, you know, and saying, hey, what do you think, Holy Father? Or, or telling him, hey, Holy Father, I really think you need to do this or that. It's yeah. not happening. And it's, 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 frankly, it's unrealistic. There used to be that saying, uh, think globally, act locally. And I think that saying is actually more relevant now than ever before. Um, there's so much that we can control locally in our, in our immediate spheres. Mm-hmm. And I hear people talk about this all, I mean, I, uh, you know, when I give talks and so forth, people are so riled up about something that, 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 that let's say it's a, a movie or an app or something that's affecting their kids. And I want to just say, okay, just push pause. So as a parent, you have, you're kind of the, the, the medium or the filter, the, the means through which your child engages with these different things. So you can decide how your child, how and if your child engages. And one of the things that I've learned from some of my very, wise friends, friends who are far more intelligent than I, they'll use controversial films and media Mm -hmm. to engage their kids in conversations about difficult things. They know their kids are going to watch this no matter what, right? There's everybody has a device. They're going to watch it at a friend's house, et cetera, et cetera. So what they do is they watch that, that, that media content content with their child. 
And during that time, they're able to have a conversation. And you shift, what that does is it shifts the conversation from, you know, this more polemical conversation between the parent and the child to here's this story, this this awful media, no matter how bad it is, right? Which again, they're probably going to watch no matter what, okay? Now that's, that's triangulating this relationship in a really good way. And now the parent and the child can have a really good conversation. So that to me is an example of what are some of the things that we do have control over and yet we will, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll throw fits about these things on the larger scale that we really have no control over. Mm-hmm. And yet there are things that we can control at the local level. And I think teaching your children how to engage media, how to opt out of media, how to be selective. Wow. There, you're, yeah. Then you're, you're going to change the world. If you change, even if you only have one child, you're going to change the world if you can give them those tools. And to the point of of using media as a means of creating conversation, maybe you've got kids that are going to listen to what you say all the time, every time, and they're not going to watch that media while they're in your house. But that means that when they get out, how have we trained them to be discerning about the things that they watch and will they have the tools they need to have when it comes to engaging those things where they're not in conversation with, with their parents or with other uh, people who are right there with them. Um, this brings up, you mentioned towards the beginning of the show, uh, the question of the culture war and some of the, the thoughts that you've had about that in the intervening years. And, this idea of acting locally, thinking globally, acting locally brings this question of culture war to mind. Um, for this point, there, the church does encourage us to be involved uh, in in our culture and shaping things um, as best as we can toward the common good. Where do we find that line to say this amount of activity in making my voice known is uh, prudent and appropriate, but this step over here is a step too far in entering into polemics and divisiveness. So where do we find that line? You know, I think it's, it's all a matter of personal discernment. And so it's one of the things that I've struggled with at times is being involved in a lot of activism and being close to leaders whose lives are imploding. I mean, mm-hmm. whether it's their marriages or their kids, and yet they're the, they're the face for some big national movement. I got to say, like, that's always rubbed me the wrong way. I think if your family's imploding or your life is imploding, it's time to step back. Take a sabbatical, take a break. I don't know. Because to me, it's if, if your own life, if you're not doing well, or the people around you who rely on you for support, who reasonably rely on you for support, your kids, for example, right? If they're totally losing it and and going off the rails, that's a sign to me that we need to step back and focus on them. That's where the more primary obligation is. That cause, no matter how great it is, we have fewer obligations to that cause than we do to to our families. Those are the people, I mean, we've chosen our spouses for better or for worse, but we chose them. (laughs) And the children that have been welcomed, um, they've been, they're gifts from God. So, and, and it, at some level, willingly accepted. So I, I think that you kind of have to do, like, how, how do I do justice to my most basic responsibilities? 
And if I can't, then I think it's time for me to say, oh, I need to refocus. Mm-hmm. Something that I I think that I came to this realization about culture wars some time ago when I was in the middle of probably one of my two or three hour long arguments on Facebook back in the day, having this tirade with the person of showing them all the ways that they were wrong and pulling out the church documents and pulling out the, the catechism quotes and and it all worked, right? Oh yeah, I was completely successful at not at all. And and I'm sitting there realizing that I'm sitting here behind a screen waiting with uh with a roiled spirit, right? It's all uh, boiling over. Um waiting for that person to say their next thing so that I can do my little bit of research and furiously type back and I I recognize that the adjectives and all of those of of furiously typing and of uh, royal spirit and all of those things were not things that were holy and that, that they were coming out of a need to control uh, the situation Mm -hmm. or to be right or to, and and in that moment, I was not the one in control that I was actually being controlled by my own um, passions and that there is a place, and sometimes I will still engage with folks that I have relationship with, that I'm face-to-face with, uh, that there is a place for uh, speaking the truth, but that that speaking the truth should never come out of a place of um, being unable to control my own emotions. I'm reminded of an experience that an older friend of mine had. So national leader, um, pro-life leader, and she was just really worked up about something. And uh, she's a Catholic and an evangelical pulled her aside and said, you do know that our Lord Jesus Christ already died and suffered for you. Mm-hmm. And in, in other words, you're not Jesus Christ. You are not the savior of the world. Right. And so I, I think I, I admire the passion that we can have in those situations, but it's also misplaced. We're not, Jesus. We're not Jesus Christ. And the, the the redemption of the world has has taken place. And now it's on up to us to work out our salvation and sanctification. Mm-hmm. And again, that gets back to what what we're doing right here and now. And it's not what we're doing in Rome and at the Vatican or in Washington, DC or the state capitol. And all those things are important. I mean, I, I very much think that particularly as Catholics, we have an obligation to be active in the public square. I just think that there are, again, we also need to stop stop and take stock of what our primary responsibilities are. Yeah. And usually they're not, those primary responsibilities do not involve getting completely angst filled about what's happening in Rome, um, whether or not you agree with a, a, a certain motor proprio. It's hard. We get, you know, there are some instructions that come through and it's very difficult to understand that, you know, whether they're guided by the Holy Spirit, they're hard to understand what, well, what does it mean if they're put into practice? What are the implications? Why is the Holy Father saying this now? So I, I get that they're difficult, right? Mm-hmm. But it, by the same token, our angst isn't going to change what we've right. been handed. Yeah. As you talk about thinking globally and acting locally and the picture that pops into my mind, if I can invoke a saint is that of uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, 
who was facing insurmountable poverty. And there was absolutely no way that she was going to make a difference and a dent in that overall problem. And she knew that. What mm-hmm. she was able to do is to make a difference and a dent in the life of the individual that was right in front of her at that moment. That's right. And to focus on that that singular person and that individual rather than focusing on the problem. And I think that that we can translate that that mindset into the things that we're doing as well, to recognize that there may be big problems in the world, but we're not the ones to solve them. We're just the ones to do the thing that's right in front of us. Well, and to also, you know, think about how moving it was that she would hold somebody that was dying, you know, somebody that had been left in the gutter and she would call them my Jesus, mm-hmm. right? You can't take a problem or a cause and call it my Jesus, Yeah. but someone who's right in front of you, whom you've been called to help, to support, to love, to be in relationship with, that's someone that you can call Jesus. So as we, as we watch the Synod, um, do you have any, just here in the last minute or so, do you have any thoughts about the best way for us to, to engage with the things that are going on this month in Rome? I would say that if it causes you angst, go out and look for a hummingbird. Find something that makes you happy. Go spend time with your kids, spend time with your spouse, um, you know, spend time with a friend. Take some time for yourself. Take some time with Jesus in the tabernacle. I I just, I don't think that any good can come out of this type of angst. And um, I have no no doubt that we're going to see nonstop, um, uh, nonstop clickbait all month long and then some right and but i think that if if it, this is not tied to your profession i would just say opt out honestly and find peace and and just enjoy life i don't know go for go get a gelato go <laughs> do something that is relaxing for you and maybe that's just staring at a wall but whatever it is um do something that is joy filling and conducive to peace yeah. We've been talking today with Dr. Pia De Salini. She's a moral theologian, an ethicist, and a cultural analyst. You can find her work over at moraltheologian.com. We're going to have links to both of those pieces we were talking about, both the one from America Magazine and the National Catholic Register, over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. Dr. Pia, thank you so much for being with us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. If you missed any part of this conversation with Dr. Pia DeSaleni, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with friends over on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There's more to this conversation as well that didn't make the broadcast. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available first to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we make this extra segment for them and give it to them for a couple of months, uh, and then we make that extra segment available to the general public. If you want to go back and look through some older ones and consider becoming a part of that support community, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link. But for now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more. You can learn more at verbum.com. 
there's all kinds of readings we could read today to uh, tomorrow at mass. We're going to hear the, the be anxious for nothing. And I considered doing that, but this passage kept coming back to me. It's a passage from Psalms 131 and our reading from, uh, from the church today is going to come from an audience from Pope Benedict the 16th uh, that he gave on Wednesday, August 10th in 2005. That's a, a an exposition on this psalm. A Song of Ascents of David O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Rather than spend any time breaking that out today as I normally do, I'm going to turn directly to our reading from church history, which is not going all that far back. Uh, this is Pope Benedict speaking about this very passage and expanding it for us from an audience that he gave in Wednesday Uh, August 10th of 2005. We have listened to only a few words, about 30 in the original Hebrew of Psalm 131, yet they are intense words that convey a topic dear to all religious literature, spiritual childhood. Our thoughts turn spontaneously to St. Therese of Lisieux, to her little way, to her remaining little in order to be held in Jesus' arms. Indeed, the clear-cut image of a mother and child in the middle of the psalm is a sign of God's tender and maternal love. As the prophet Hosea formally expressed it, When Israel was a child, I loved him. I drew him with human cords, with bands of love. I fostered him like one who raises an infant to his cheeks. I stooped to feed my child. The psalm begins by describing an attitude quite the opposite of infancy, which, while aware of its own frailty, trusts in the help of others. In the foreground of this psalm, instead, are pride of heart, haughty eyes, and great things that are too sublime for me. This is an illustration of the proud person who is described by the Hebrew words that suggest pride and haughtiness, the arrogant attitude of those who look down on others, considering them inferior. The great temptation of the proud who want to be like God, the arbiter of good and evil, is decisively rejected by the person of prayer who chooses humble and spontaneous trust in the one Lord. Thus, we move on to the unforgettable image of the mother and child. The original Hebrew text does not speak of a newborn child, but of a child that has been weaned. Now it is known that in the ancient Near East, a special celebration marked the official weaning of a child, usually about the age of three. The child to which the psalmist refers is now bound to the mother by a most personal and intimate bond, hence not merely by physical contact and the need for food. It is a more conscious tie, although nonetheless immediate and spontaneous. This is the ideal parable of the true childhood of the Spirit that does not abandon itself to God blindly and automatically, but serenely and responsibly. At this point, the praying person's profession of trust is extended to the entire community. O Israel, 
hope in the Lord both now and forever. In the entire people which receives security, life, and peace from God, hope now blossoms and extends from the present to the future, now and forever. It is easy to continue the prayer by making other voices in the Psalms ring out, inspired by this same trust in God. To you I was committed at birth, from my mother's womb you are God, in Psalm 22. Though my father and mother forsake me, yet the Lord will receive me, in Psalm 27. For you are my hope, O Lord, my trust, O God, from my youth. On you I depend from birth. From my mother's womb you are my strength, in Psalm 71. Humble trust, as we have seen, is opposed by pride. John Cassian, a 4th or 5th century writer, warned the faithful of the danger of this vice that destroys all the virtues overall and does not only attack the tepid and the weak, but principally those who have forced their way to the top. He continues, This is the reason why blessed David preserved his heart with such great circumspection, to the point that he dared proclaim before the one whom none of the secrets of his conscience escaped, Lord, may my heart not grow proud, nor my gaze be raised with haughtiness. Let me not seek great things that are beyond my strength. Yet, knowing well how difficult such custody is, even for those who are perfect, He does not presume to rely solely on his own abilities, but implores the Lord with prayers to help him succeed in avoiding the darts of the enemy and in not being injured by them. Let not the foot of the proud overtake me, in Psalm 36. Likewise, an anonymous elderly desert father has handed down to us this saying that echoes Psalm 131. I have never overstepped my rank to walk higher, nor have I ever been troubled in the case of humiliation, for I concentrated my every thought on this, praying the Lord to strip me of the old man. That comes from an audience preached by Pope Benedict XVI on Wednesday, August 10th, 2005. That psalm really sums up everything we've been talking about today and I think is a wonderful meditation for us as we go through the month of October as the Synod is happening in Rome. It would be very easy to want to follow every story, to want to look at every nuance and figure everything out and and parse it out and try to understand it. But sometimes the best course of action is to realize it's not helpful to obsess over things about which we have no control. To not set our minds or our eyes on things that are too high for us, but rather, again, turning to the immediate, turning to the presence of the Lord right here, like a weaned child with his mother. O Israel, trust in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, because in those intimate moments, that's where we find peace. That's where we find hope. And that's trust that we can rely on. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more 
And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.